For decades now, for I guess my whole lifetime, we have been burdened with the same old Republican candidates for president, for, well, until Trump, for Senate, for governor, for everything down to dog catcher. And it's the same old thing. We need to cut taxes for corporations and we need to let people do whatever they want and abuse themselves however they want. We got to outsource all the jobs because that's going to be good for Americans somehow because of some egghead spreadsheet or something. And it's the same old drone, drone, drone that just doesn't seem very persuasive. And then every so often something shifts. And there are candidates who kind of break that mold. And I am very pleased to be joined by one of the candidates who is very much breaking that mold, Blake Masters. Blake Masters running for Senate in Arizona. Blake runs Teal Capital and the Teal Foundation. He has co-authored a number one New York Times bestseller, Zero to One, lives in Tucson, and very, very soon, we hope, will be representing Arizona in the United States Senate. Blake, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Michael. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. So, Blake, you are not uh, your run-of-the-mill chamber of commerce, you know, just wears the exact same Brooks Brothers suit and says the same stale talking points. You're a little bit of a different candidate. How, how are you different from the typical old stodgy Republican we've come to expect? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I learned a lot from President Trump. I think he came on the scene in 2016 and, and he busted up the establishment. He was willing to say things uh, that were true, that we sort of all knew were true, but that you couldn't quite say as a conventional politician. Um, like he was just on the debate stage in 2016 saying the Iraq war was a mistake. It turned out to be a big disaster. I think that's how most of the country felt, but that was still not something that Republican politicians could say. Um, and so I'm out there on the campaign trail trying to tell people what I think. You know, I think I've got a beat on what's gone wrong in this country, not just in the last nine or 10 months of the Biden administration, although so much has gone wrong, um, but actually just going back a few decades. You know, I think the rot in our politics is pretty deep. And I think people want, um, you know, smart, especially young, uh, new leaders that are going to call out problems and not be politically correct and just try to tell people the truth. I think somehow that's really kind of contrarian today. Well, I'm, I'm glad you've made this point too on Biden. Yes, Biden is an extreme failure as president. He's basically everything he's touched has turned to ash and he's right. been kind of a dunce for his whole career, but it's not just Biden. And, and one of those stale lines that we've heard from Republicans for so long is, you know, everything Republicans do is good and everything Democrats do is bad. And every problem in the world is because of Joe Biden or just fill in the blank of whatever Democrat. And what you're pointing out is in recent decades, Republicans have made a whole lot of mistakes too. Yeah. Like I think Reagan was a good president and we rightly look back at Reagan with, with fondness. I mean, I think he did what he needed to do in the eighties, right? We won the cold war. We defeated Soviet communism. Um, that, that was all great. And then I think Trump did what he needed to do in 2016. I think he saved the country from a Hillary Clinton administration, right? Um, but what happened in between? And I think Republicans just got complacent and they got comfortable uh, comfortable playing defense. And it was just sort of George W. Bush, you know, like I'm a good guy and we'll just, we'll have some good faith disagreements. And in retrospect, I think the George W. Bush administration was really bad. Like we got the Iraq war and trillions in spending and they centralized education policy, you know, with no child left behind uh, in DC. And we didn't even get a whole lot of cultural or social conservatism because it just led to Obama. And so 
with a Republican establishment that's just content to play defense and just kind of more or less mindlessly repeat whatever Reagan said in his time, I think the party just kind of fell asleep at the wheel. And, and you know, we see the results. It just doesn't work. And then we got Trump. And I, I agree with you. Trump was so much better than any president in my lifetime. Unfortunately, I just missed Reagan. You know, I was born under Bush the first. And so I, you know, it was Bush the first and then Clinton and then Bush too didn't, it didn't, that didn't really work out. And then Obama was awful. Then we got Trump and it was really great. And I thought, here's the beginning of something new and exciting in the country. But then, then he lost reelection or some people think maybe he didn't lose reelection. I mean, he practically, obviously he's not the president right now, but some people have a lot of questions about the 2020 election. Well, I'm one of those people. Um, I, I think it was messed up. You know, there's a lot of wild stuff out there and not every theory is true, of course, right? Um, but the, the the media, the blue checks, the sort of credentialed, you know, corporate media, they want to gaslight us and insist that this was the most perfect election of all time. And of course it wasn't. It just demonstrably wasn't. You can go through six or seven things even before election day that just make this thing so messed up. Like I started to get really worried in probably like August of 2020 when you started to see these headlines, right? these seemingly coordinated news headlines, because this is how it works, right? There's talking points and all these different left-wing outlets just sort of, you know, deliver different headline versions of it. And they were starting to say, don't, don't expect results on election night, right? Like you, Michael, you're not expecting results on election night, are you? <laughs> what a crazy thing to expect. World, they were priming the country to accept the chaos, you know, that, that, that would come after the election. And um, and then, of course, you had big tech censorship. I wrote an op-ed with J.D. Vance in the, in the New York Post about this. Um, Facebook and Twitter censoring the Hunter Biden laptop story. Just saying 100 million Americans couldn't read that anymore because that's misinformation. They did that three weeks before the election. But that's true information from a true newspaper that was bad for Joe Biden. And the official margins in this 2020 election were so thin, were so small that I think even that one brazen act of corporate censorship could have swung the election, let alone Mark Zuckerberg personally spending $420 million on allegedly neutral election administration, right? You look at how that money was farmed out. It was super partisan. So I think the scales were were super tilted. I don't think we had a free and fair election. Yeah, and, and some of it, you know, some of it was unfair in the way that might be legal, but it, it really seems to raise a lot of questions. Some of it was just clearly illegal. And if you look in Pennsylvania, for instance, the, the use of widespread mail-in ballots in clear violation of the state constitution, no matter what the state Supreme Court has to say. I mean, there, there were all of these problems. You mentioned big tech. If three billionaire oligarchs led by hipster Rasputin, Jack Dorsey, if they're going to control speech in a republic, they're not just controlling one aspect of the society. They're controlling the whole way that, that, that the government is administered, right? We, we govern ourselves by persuading one another and, and communicating. So I think you're absolutely right. And uh, the fact that you're willing to risk being called an insurrectionist, uh, t- yep. terrorist, or whatever nonsense, you know, the blue checks are going to say, I think that that shows a lot of courage. But one aspect of your campaign that has not gotten a ton of play, and I think it should, it, it's not just uh, relitigating what has happened in the past, but you are looking down the line on issues that will affect the country, not just a year or two from now, but decades and decades from now. You're looking at the collapse of the American family and what it is that we as Republicans or conservatives or, or Americans broadly can do about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm a super pro-market, super pro-business guy. 
Um, I really am. But I think markets are tools for human flourishing. Like this, the the free market is not some some ultimate goal. You know, the free market is is one of the most powerful ways we have to achieve the ultimate goal, which is human flourishing, which is successful human families, right? Which is a a strong American middle class. And I think for too long, again, Republicans got stuck in this rut where they would just repeat sort of Reaganite economic orthodoxy. And you, you know, they, they bury their head in, their, in the sand and it's like a bunch of ostriches just with their head in the sand and you're, you're failing to pay attention to the consequences of your policies. Well, with all the offshoring, um, you know, with all the sort of pro big business policy uh, that we've had in the past few decades, um, I think big business has done great. Increasingly, big business is left wing and it's sort of fused with, you know, with uh, state power in very problematic ways. But the middle class has not done great. The middle class has been hollowed out. And it's harder and harder to start a family. Um, family formation is being delayed. People our age, right, millennials, um, we're not getting married as much. We're, not, we're having fewer kids and later. And this is kind of a disaster because I think if you can't um, participate in an economy and, you know, actually have a reasonable expectation of getting married and having kids and raising a family um, starting in your late 20s, then like what's that's GDP may be like super high. But what good is it for if the middle class in America is just getting hollowed out? You know, this reminds me of a point that the English writer G.K. Chesterton made, which is one, one of the things that's gone wrong in the world is not that the vices have, have run wild. It's not that the world is too bad. It's that the virtues have run wild. And, and in many ways, the world is too good. And that's, that's what I'm hearing when you mention the markets. Yeah, we love the markets. We want a robust economy. But you don't want to put the cart before the horse. You don't want to pretend right. that that GDP number is the be-all and end-all and purpose of government and society. No, the, the economy is there, the, the markets are there to support human flourishing. And that means robust families. That's the bedrock political unit. That means making sure, actually, this is another point that you've brought up that sent shockwaves through the Republican establishment. You think that you think we ought to go back to the old-timey, terrible days when a family could support itself on one income. It's amazing to me that that's always so controversial whenever I say it. All I say is, in America, you should be able to raise a family on one single income, right? We used to be able to do this. My grandfather did this. He weighed nails at a steel mill in Pueblo, Colorado for 30-plus years. Um, they were able to do that, you know, relatively modest house, but one car, you know, week-long vacation every year. And um, that that worked. There was something about the economy where that could work. And now after decades of inflation and, you know, wage stagnation and offshoring, deindustrialization, you can't really do that anymore. And it may be a hard problem to solve, you know, have some policy ideas on how we get there. But it's so fascinating because whenever I just articulate that as the goal, the left freaks out. They want to say that's sexist or they want to say, yeah, exactly your point, right? That's retrograde. You're just trying to live in the 1950s. And it's like maybe both parents in a household want to work. Like if both really have great careers and they care about that, great. I'm not trying to tell anyone what they have to do. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be nice if that was a choice? And some some people don't like that, but I think that's the future. And, and the political party that figures out how to actually deliver that reality, I think will govern successfully for quite a long time. I know so many young women, young mothers who, and when I say young mothers, I'm talking about millennial young, so like 33. You know, it used to be you'd have kids much younger than that, but right. be, but because of the problems you're describing, people keep delaying these things. So, you know, a, to, by today's standards, a relatively young mother, say late 20s or early 30s, wants to stay at home and raise her kid. 
I have a young child, you know, a 10 month old baby and he needs mommy. And they, you know, it's an exhausting, it's a full-time job to raise a kid, but now that's very difficult. And so what happens is you have to send the kid to daycare very shortly after the kid is born in a lot of cases so that I, my, my wife needs to go out and work for some other guy so that she can make money so that I can pay some other woman to raise our kid. Does that seem like the most efficient way, the, the best way to, to have a family in the United States? Seems a little inefficient to me. It doesn't to me personally. You know, I mean, my wife, she stays at home and she uh, takes care of the kids. We have three, three boys. They're seven, five and one and a half. And she homeschools them. You know, I try to pitch in on the margin, but I'm busy um, campaigning and, you know, I still have my my day job. And um, but but she feels like that's her highest calling. You know, she was a preschool teacher before and that's just what she wants to be doing. Um, so, look, if not, if, if people disagree, like, fine, go get a job and pay a nanny. But you shouldn't have to do that. You know, that shouldn't just be the default assumption. I think it's weird that it's become that. And I think Republicans are complicit, too, because, again, you said you kind of implied it didn't make sense and it doesn't make sense from the family perspective. But the way it, it makes sense is in the GDP you know, lens. If you just view everything through the lens of we need to maximize GDP, well, you've got the husband working, that his income's contributing to GDP. Now the wife is too. And now we're paying the nanny. So we've got three incomes. Look at all this economic activity that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, is that what the parents want? Is that what is that what's best for the kids? You know, these things are a little bit harder to measure. And we have such a measurement bias, we just gravitate towards things that we can measure. Well, you can measure GDP. But again, if, if you just maximize for that and you dial everything else back, maybe you end up with this really weird society. And I think it looks a lot like the society we have now. For, for so long, Republicans would make fun of Democrats. And they'd say, the Democrat, the leftist approach to politics is who cares if it works in practice? Does it work in theory? You know, we're the conservatives. We're really practical. Well, all too often, you've seen conservatives become these egghead, uh, spreadsheet-loving th- theoreticians who, who are pushing a vision and a narrative that is really divorced from the reality on the ground. You know, for, for so long, especially in the last 20 years, you'd hear Republicans say, everything's going great for, Ameri- for the middle-class Americans. It's great. Look at my spreadsheet. Look at my GDP counter. Well, how about look on the ground in America? You've got families falling apart. You've got, for goodness sakes, the average life expectancy declining in the United States Dropping. because of Crazy. deaths of despair. I mean, that. so these are, these are huge generational problems, and I, I do think you've got, you've identified them. So then what do we do? Senator Masters makes it to Washington, D.C. What, what is the first sort of legislation that you start pushing? Day one is just close, close the border to illegal immigration. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders used to be free to talk about this. He knew that unlimited illegal uh, immigration actually depresses the wages for working class Americans. Um, for the last five or 10 years, he hasn't really been able to talk about that because the left wants open borders, I think, for maybe uh, electoral purposes later down the line. But, um, you know, stop the, stop the glut of illegal immigration. I think we probably have too much legal immigration, too. Most people are shocked on the campaign trail when I tell them that we actually accept more than one million legal immigrants every year, you know, with various kinds of visas. And I've seen in Silicon in the Silicon Valley context, the H-1B visa system is completely abused. You know, of course, Facebook would love to import tens and tens of thousands of software programmers from India and pay them less money than they would have to pay, you know, a U.S. citizen to do those jobs. But I think we got to you know, drastically curtail, if not like end that program, because I think American jobs by default should go to American citizens. 
Um, but broadly, you need policies that A, raise wages, and B, cut costs. You know, the costs of healthcare and education and housing, the stuff just goes up and up every year. And we get used to that. We start to think of it as like a, a, a law of physics. But actually, when you zoom in on these industries, there's a lot of regulation, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of sort of cartel-like, monopoly-like behavior. And I think if you go in with the with the sort of machete and you you intelligently sort of hack through the, the brush, there's a lot we can do to make sure that we can build more housing, that we can deliver health care in, in less bureaucratic and less expensive ways. Um, so if we can get people's wages to rise and costs to fall, all of a sudden, you know, five or 10 years from now, I think you can get back to a place where you can raise a family on one single income. I really do. You know, under the Trump administration, for the first time in a very long time, you saw wages start to tick up again. Real wages start to tick up. And then the establishment said, no, that's enough of that. We can't, we can't have too much of that going on. And so there, there went right. Trump. You, you make this point, which is politically controversial. Among the political class, it's a controversial point. Among the American people, it's a totally uncontroversial point. Namely, you think we ought to drastically reduce legal immigration as well as illegal immigration. There was a poll that came out. It was a Harvard-Harris poll around 2019 that asked people, their views on illegal immigration and legal immigration. And the the phrasing of the survey was such that they were just talking about numbers. And because, as you know, most people don't realize how many immigrants are pouring into the country every year. When, when they were asked what number seemed about right, people settled on around half a million legal immigrants coming in every year. Now, of course, we know the real number is much, much higher than that. And so the, the survey concluded that the majority of Americans, so that includes many Democrats and includes many independents, want to drastically reduce legal immigration as well. So why is there such a huge divide here between an issue that is very popular among the American people and unheard of among the political class in either party? I mean, I think you see this a lot. I think the political establishment has just grown completely out of touch with everyday reality, with what people actually want. But I think there's a lot of, you know, the H-1B visa system, right? Like I mentioned, the, the corporate interests keep that thing going. Like they want that cheap labor. Um, they just do. You know, universities, like there's a lot of Chinese nationals studying in the United States right now and they pay full price. You know, they'll get into Harvard and they'll pay full price. And of course, there's some low grade espionage going on there. It's not James Bond sexy stuff, but like they're they're recording stuff. They're sending information back home. And, um, you know, there's a lot of visa overstays. There's a lot of, of people who are granted, you know, status to be here legally after Um after they get educated in the United States. And I think the the incentives of the universities are to keep that gravy train going for as long as possible. So I think, you know, most of these visa systems, I, you know, I like the O-1 visa. If you're like an extraordinary talented person, like I want the world's best and the brightest to come here. You know, if you're a rocket scientist that's going to come and start a company, great. Like, let's bring you in. But I think that's honestly probably like 10,000 to 50,000 people a year. Hmm. Um and that's not just, it's not 500,000, it's not a million. And so I think we just need to radically reform these systems because I don't think they work to the benefit of the average American. And that should be the fundamental litmus test of any immigration policy is, does this policy make things better for the average American? If it does, it's probably a good policy. And if it doesn't, then throw it to the curb. Now, this lens, which makes sense to me, this lens is not very common 
in the Republican Party, at, at least it hasn't been in recent years, which is you're, you're saying what I'm going to do is I'm going to push for good policy and I'm going to oppose bad policy and I'm going to push for things that make the real lives of Americans better and I'm going to oppose things that make the real lives of Americans worse. Because it seems to me the lens on the Republican Party, in the Republican Party for the past couple of decades is deregulate deregulate everything. Allow the left to deregulate on the social side and don't really push back too hard there. And then we're going to just deregulate on the business side, on the tax side, on on the education. We're just going to deregulate everything. It seems to me the pitch for Republican politicians in recent decades is vote for me and I won't do anything. (laughs) I won't govern you. I'll just do the least I possibly can. It sounds like your campaign pitch is different. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I just, I feel like I've grown up watching the progressive left just be completely ascendant. They've taken over almost every single institution in our country, right? They run the government right now, but even the social and cultural institutions, look at the, look at the church, um, look at formerly neutral institutions or center-right institutions like the military. You know, you've got General Milley up there testifying about white rage and he, how he reads Mao and Marx <laughs> and he's teaching soldiers about critical race theory. And meanwhile, like they forget how to win wars. Um, you know, I think it's just such a disservice to the, the the service members, actually. But the progressive left is ascendant, and they intend on concentrating power, and on on monopolizing it. Um, they really do want a a sort of one party, I think, totalitarian state. Like that's that's what they want. And so, if they're going to use political power. You know, and they have no qualms about that. They don't care about the Constitution. They don't care about the rule of law. We do care about that stuff on the right, except, like you said, most Republican politicians, they just don't want to do anything. They just want to play defense. And if you just play defense, if you don't want to use state power to actually, you know, make a safe and functioning society for people, and the left is just going to use that power, then you're going to lose. And that's why the left has taken over. And so this sort of libertarian Republican thing, I'm sympathetic to it because I don't, you know, I'm, I'm cautious of government power, um, unlike the left. But if we don't stand up and defend ourselves, they will take over this country. And they tell us what they're going to do. They're going to add states to the union so they can get a lock on the Senate forever. They're going to pack the Supreme Court. They're going to federalize elections. Uh, We have to be willing to use power to prevent them from being able to do that. Otherwise, there's no USA and just 10 or 20 years. Right. Well, when you say there's no USA, I mean, people might think that sounds hyperbolic, but you know, what makes a nation? Geographically, borders make a nation. The left is trying to destroy that. Culturally, something in common makes a nation, but the left wants to tear apart the things that we hold in common. And very often that the kind of libertarian strain in the Republican party has also pushed back against the ideas that we have anything in common, that we have mutual obligations to one another, that we actually ought to have some things that are unifying us as a country. One of the topics that's come up a lot recently is whether or not the country is just going to crack up. Are we going to have Texit? Are we going to have CalExit? Uh, What is it exactly that's going to hold us together? Or are we going to go the way of the Balkans? I mean, I sure hope we don't, you know, and I'm, I guess I'm optimistic because I'm running for office. I think I can, you know, play a, a, hopefully a pretty important role and trying to keep things together. But I do think there's some common culture, there's some common bond that we have to have. It can't just be this ideology of liberalism all the way down where everybody's just an atomistic individual. And yeah, if you have obligations to your your family or your neighbor, um, you know, you can't just dissolve those bonds. It can't just be everybody do whatever they want. Because I think we see that that ends in, in poverty, that ends in chaos, that does end in balkanization. 
And so I think, you know, this is why the schooling issue is so important. We need to teach young Americans, new generations, to actually uh, respect their past, right? It's the opposite of this crazy, toxic, left-wing stuff that they're teaching in schools, like the 1619 history curriculum, which is actually in some school districts in Phoenix. It teaches that the country wasn't founded in 1776. It was founded in 1619 when the first slave ships came. And kids learn that our Constitution is is discardable and you know evil because the founding fathers were racist. And I just think that's the biggest difference between the progressive mind and the conservative mind. The progressive sees that, okay, the past wasn't perfect, and so you throw out everything. Or the, the you know, society's not perfect today. We don't live in a perfect country. I think it's the best that's ever existed, but it's not perfect. And so they want to say, because it's not perfect, burn it all down. And that's the Bolshevik mentality, whereas the conservative says, yeah, it's not perfect, but let's work to make it better. And let's keep and understand and respect uh, everything good that's come before us, right? That tradition, those those bonds. And so that's the fundamental goal is which way do we break here? But that's why I think, you know, my campaign and, and my political uh, mission, it's this war on progressivism because I do think it's destroying America. And I don't think that's hyperbole. And like I, if we don't do our jobs in 10 years, yeah, America is still here. I mean, the, the White House will still exist, but, you know, it'll be a one party totalitarian state. It'll be California, just worse. And it'll be managed decline like Western Europe and and I think America, in its sort of spiritual sense, will be gone forever. Well, I th- and you've hit on this issue of education. You're seeing that rot go all the way down. This education issue just cost Terry McAuliffe the governorship in Virginia. I mean, the, the, by the end of that campaign, it was all about, do you, have, do you, the parents, have the right to raise your kids, or do I, Terry McAuliffe, have the right to raise your kids and fill right. their heads with critical race theory and transgender ideology, uh, neither of which are being taught in schools, but both of which are really great and we should teach them in schools. They kept going back and forth on, on their line there. Right. Uh, so, so what do we do? I mean, you, this is an issue. Republicans have brought it up every now and again. Usually their answer is you know, abolish the Department of Education. I think that I think that line of thinking has kind of gone away a little bit. Now we're more focused on what do we do in the classroom. Why is it? Why is education becoming the the new grassroots issue-driven movement? Well, I think it's one consequence, one one of the only maybe good consequences of the COVID pandemic was for the first time parents actually saw what was being taught to their kids. Like my kids listening to that crap for eight hours a day. Um, and so, you know, you see this sort of uh, reaction against that. Whereas before, I think the bias is to always think, oh, the, the, the bad stuff is happening in other schools, right? Like my kid's school is fine. And it's like, no, actually, here's a lot of evidence that says your kid's school is really messed up. And what we have to remember is that, I mean, McAuliffe in Virginia was dumb enough to say the quiet part out loud. But this is what this is what the whole left wing education apparatus thinks. This is what the teachers unions think. They don't think that parents should be in charge. Of their kids' education. They say, trust the experts. And it's like, they're, they're the failed credentialed experts. The real experts are the parents. And so you've got to put more power back in the hands of parents. I think, uh, I think that means school choice. You know, I think school choice is sort of the civil rights issue of our time. Um, you should not be relegated to some failing school just because that happens to be, you know, your, your zip code or your state assignment. Um, I think that if, you know, if you're paying dollars into the education system, but you prefer to homeschool your kid, I think you should be able to get all that money back hmm. or at least a lion's share of it so that you can homeschool. And if you look at the polling, more people would want to homeschool if they could afford it. And again, you can't really afford it because we live in a society where you need two incomes to make ends meet. But if, if parents could afford to, more people would do it. More people would create sort of neighborhood schools. We want to decentralize 
you know, the, the system as much as possible and put power back in the hands of parents. Again, maybe hard to do, but that's the, that's the goal. And then policies that work towards that are almost, by definition, good. Well, and so th- I guess this leads into the, the broader picture, too. You know, yes, the, there, there are some concrete ways to do it, but it's going to be an uphill climb. What about the broader political problem? We touched on it a little bit at the top, this problem of election integrity, but really we call it the swamp or the blob or this ugly connection between the government and big tech. You know, we, it used to be public versus private enterprise. Now it, it's a little bit of a blurrier line between those two and the universities and the media and the whole liberal blob working in concert with one another. How is one guy sharp though he might be, focused though he might be, how is some senator from Arizona going to help to drain that swamp? You know, I think just going in with clear eyes about it, I know how hard it's going to be. Like I know it's, you know, it's, it's probably literally impossible, of course, for me to do it by myself, but I'll try to be, uh, try to be a, a leader and recruit others to the cause. You know, I do think one individual senator actually has so much more power even legislatively than people think. There's all sorts of um, interesting procedural rules and hacks that you can really familiarize yourself with. Um, You have a lot of power in that chamber. Most people don't use it, right? Because the whole pressure is to, uh, to, to go along to get along, you know, just do whatever leadership says. And I definitely don't intend on doing that. So I think I can actually be quite effective. Um, I also want to use the cultural power of the Senate seat. You know, I think most, there's a handful of uh, examples that do this, but most don't do this. And part of it is, yeah, can I inspire uh, a new generation of people to run for office or to get involved? Can I be a messenger uh, for the right kind of ideals? We can learn from the left, like the left advances statement legislation, you know, that might look um, uh, really crazy or really radical one year, like it's not going to pass. But then they introduce it the next year and the next year and the next year. And pretty soon they move the Overton window so that that idea mm-hmm. is sort of more legitimated in the public mind. And then all of a sudden, seven years later, boom, it's law. Like, look, I think the Green New Deal is still really crazy. Yeah. But it was, um, but everybody knew it was crazy when AOC first came on the scene and started blabbering about it. And now, you know, they just kind of beat people down and we're at risk of passing that. And I think that's a problem. And I think Republicans don't don't use those same tactics, but we absolutely can. And so I think you could just get me and J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley and Tom Cotton, Ted Cruz, like we've got a core group and you, you throw a few more and all of a sudden there's sort of a new balance of power in the Senate. I think that could be very, very interesting. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the Green New Deal example. I remember when AOC came out with the Green New Deal. Mitch McConnell said, well, we need to bring this to the floor for a vote immediately. This is the craziest thing I ever saw, and we're going to get you on the record. Ha, 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 ha. Well, who's laughing now? You know, it was crazy. It is. It remains crazy legislation. But through that persistence, through that willingness to wield power, the power that I guess her constituents sent her to Congress to wield, it has been normalized. And they have moved, as you say, the Overton window. And it's, I I think... uh, you you are demonstrating a clarity of vision here, even among your col- your potential future colleagues who who will be uh, more amenable to that view as well. There there is a lot of power actually in the Senate, and Republicans a lot of Republicans have just derelicted their duty and given that up for ideological reasons or for cowardice or for, for ignorance or whatever. Uh, but now would be the time to use it. Uh, the, the time is running short. We don't we don't have all we the time to. in the world. Blake, I have t- speaking of time, I've taken up too much of yours. Where can people find you? Just go to my website, which is blakemasters.com. 
Very direct. Sign up to sign up to volunteer. Very direct. Very simple. Sign up to volunteer. Donate if you can. I wish campaigns weren't so expensive, but they are. So every bit helps. Um, but get in touch and and sign up, and and we'll send you updates. Blake, I wish you sincerely. I wish you the best of luck. Head on over to blakemasters.com to learn more about Blake, and, and we'll have to have you back to check in on the campaign. Sounds great. <laughs> 